bring you more pain tonight. <laughs> a couple years ago, I spoke on this Daniel. We went through the book of Daniel, and uh, we spoke on Daniel 12, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to do that again. I'm doing that for a certain reason. It has to do with school. <laughs> but uh, this time, more intense pain than last time, I think, probably, for all of you out there. Daniel 12, 1 to 3. And... Uh, as we were going through this last time, you know, first of all, that I, we presented this from a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial standpoint, uh, and we said, if you don't hold that viewpoint, that's, I understand that. We're not going to be, uh, you, know, you know, against each other because of that. Uh, we hold to the cardinal doctrines of the faith here, the inspiration of scripture, salvation by faith, and so on. If we don't disagree on end times... We're going to disagree on end times. It's just the way it is. Uh, I don't know everything that's going to happen in the end times, neither does anybody else. Uh, anybody tells you they know exactly what's going to happen in the end times to the nth degree, that's not true. No, but none of us know. Only God knows what's going to happen exactly. But do my best to portray this passage um, as I believe it should be portrayed. Uh, as you look in Old Testament history, you see that God showed his love toward Israel. He showed favor upon his people. He chose the nation of Israel from all the nations on the face of the earth. He chose the one tiny nation of Israel to be his people. He favored them. He, he blessed them. He led them. He wanted to bless them. His great desire was to bless Israel, uh, and he loved them dearly. However, in their history, there were many times when things were very, very dark and bleak. Uh, over and over again, there were dark times, bleak times for the nation of Israel, sometimes because God was testing Israel, other times because Israel was disobedient to God and they were being judged by God. Other times, Israel has gone through bleak periods of time in their history for reasons only God knows, that we, we, couldn't, we couldn't trace them or track them down. For example, uh, the 40 years of wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, bleak time for the nation of Israel as they were being formed into a nation. They were, and that was because of their disobedience. As you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you can see their wandering wilderness due to the fact of their disobedience. That was a bleak time for them. Then you go to the slavery in Egypt that lasted 400 some odd years, bleak time again. You read Exodus chapter 1, statements like this. You read, they were afflicted with hard labor, Israel was. They were compelled to labor rigorously. Their lives were bitter with hard labor. And then you add to that the fact that the king wanted all male children to be killed in Israel. And it was indeed a bleak time for the nation as they were being formed into a nation at least. What about after the division of the kingdom to the northern and southern kingdoms? The northern kingdom ended up eventually in Assyria, being devastated by Assyria. The southern kingdom went into uh, Babylonian captivity for 70 years, so that was a bitter time for Israel. And then there was a persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, that was in the second century, approximately B.C. This guy was a wicked ruler. We talked about Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 11 when we went through the book. I don't know if you remember that or not, but in three days, this guy managed to massacre 40,000 men and women and children and infants, and an additional 40,000 he, he sold into slavery. A bleak time in Israel's history. Then you go into 70 A.D. and Rome sacks Jerusalem, destroys everything. Horrible time for them. And then in recent times, what about the Holocaust? Some six million Jews exterminated by the Nazis in World War II. Another horrible, bleak time for Israel. So 
Many times in Israel's history were dark, hopeless, bleak. And yet, even with all that, there's going to be a time coming when it's going to be worse than any of those aforementioned times. It's going to be a time worse than anything they've experienced in their history. That time is called the tribulation period, in particular the great tribulation. It's yet to happen. It's going to be worse than the slavery in Egypt. It's going to be worse than the uh, years of wandering in the wilderness. It's going to be worse than the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's going to be worse than the Holocaust uh, in Israel, in, uh, for Israel back in World War II. It's going to be the worst time of, of uh, affliction for Israel ever, an unprecedented time of misery for Israel yet to come. That's what the Word of God teaches. However, though this will be the bleakest time in their history, there's hope at the end of the tunnel. There's going to be what's called the resurrection to come after that. Let's read Daniel chapter 12, 1 to 3. It says there, now at that time, Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. This is the fourth and final vision of Daniel, as you, if you recall when we went through the series here. Uh, we had four visions. The first vision was in Daniel chapter 7, the night vision. Uh, the second vision was in Daniel chapter 8, the vision of the ram, the goat, and the little horn. Daniel chapter 9, the vision of the 77s. And then in chapters 10 through 12, we have this final vision. It actually begins and in introduced in chapter 10 and goes from chapter 11 into chapter 12, where we conclude the vision in verse 3 of chapter 12. And so today in this final vision, we are going to look at two major themes in the final days for Israel, two major themes, and that would be the tribulation and the resurrection. The tribulation is found in verse 1, <clears throat> and it says, notice that phrase repeated, at that time, uh, until that time, at that time, repeated three, three different times. And what time is he talking about? Well, if you go back in the context to chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, we, we talked about, that, it talks about the Antichrist there, but before that it is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, that evil guy back in the 2nd century B.C. that slaughtered all those people and did a lot of horrible things. And then you, you get to verse 36, and we, we're not going to develop all this again like we did back then, but it says, then the king will do as he pleases. Well, you have a problem with who the king is in Daniel 11.36 because it does not square with the historical information concerning Antiochus Epiphanes. It's somebody different. And this is where you have an argument and a disagreement over certain things. Nevertheless, it's someone different. And this king in chapter, in verse 36, had been spoken of before in chapter 7, in chapters nine of, uh, chapter 9 of Daniel. He's the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. He's the prince who is to come of Daniel chapter 9. In the New Testament, he's known as the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist, and other names as well. And so the time spoken of in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, is Antichrist's reign of terror at the end time. And this, because of time, we don't have time to develop chapter 11 again. It's a long chapter with a lot of, uh, a lot of detail. Um, and so 
this view that this is the Antichrist uh, at the end of chapter 11 is not new. It's held by many in church history, for Jerome, for example, or Chrysostom. And listen to this. Stephen Miller, a scholar on this, says, Today the majority of both amillennial and premillennial scholars interpret this king to be the Antichrist. Interesting statement there. And then in addition to that, we're talking about what time it is. It's a tribulation time. 12.2, Daniel 12.2 is talking about the, the resurrection of the saints. So that gives us another hint as to what's being referred to here. So from our perspective, this is still future. What does this passage tell us about Israel and tribulation? First of all, it tells us that Israel will receive supernatural assistance. They're going to receive supernatural assistance, and that would be from Michael, the great prince. Verse 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands over the sons of your people, will arise. Who is Michael? Well, you've read about him in the Bible. He's an important angel. He's called one of the chief princes in Daniel 10.13. Same verse says that Michael came to help another angel out who was being resisted by an evil angel. And uh, in uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 21, Michael's called the prince of Daniel and Daniel's people. Jude 9, he's called Michael the archangel. And obviously a high-ranking archangel, right? Because in Jude 9, it, tell, it tells about that, the fact that Michael was, was disputing with uh, uh, Moses about the body of Satan. And so whenever we see Michael, he's always coming to the aid of God's people Israel in regard to the evil one. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 9, Michael and his angels are engaged in a battle against the devil and his angels. And it's the battle that Satan loses. So Michael doesn't run from a fight, right, especially when it involves God's people Israel. He comes to help them out. In 12.1 it says, Michael stands over the sons of your people. The word stand is used, is used twice in this verse. Uh, it says in the Hebrew at least, it says, it says literally, now at that time Michael the great prince who stands, and the word guards in italics not there, the, the, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people will stand, same word used there, translated arise. You can translate it stand or arise either way. But the word means, uh, this is Michael standing over the people of God. And the word means to stand near or to protect. Michael is standing up for Israel, standing up as their guard or their protector, the one that comes to their aid. He's their defender. And have you ever noticed that every time, as we said earlier, that Michael is involved, he comes to the aid of God's people Israel. This is what he does. He stands up to protect Israel. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. And read verses 7 and 9 so you can see uh, the context a little bit better or, or what's happening over there. Since it has to do with this passage, Revelation 12, verses 7 and 9. And it says over there, <clears throat> Revelation 12, 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Dragon is Satan, as you see in this chapter. The dragon and his angels wage war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. When does this war take place, and what does it have to do with Daniel chapter 12? Well, Robert Thomas, who wrote a commentary on Revelation, by the way, one of Mike's teachers, said this. He said this war, in reference to this passage in Revelation 12, the war is an end-time event occurring midway through Daniel's 70th week, that's the tribulation period. During this period, Satan's total energies will oppose anyone allied to God, particularly the people of Israel. The involvement of Michael in defense of Israel in the last days also coincides with this conclusion. 
So he's saying that war in heaven takes place midway through the tribulation period, and Michael plays his role out as a defender like he does in, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Stephen Miller, another, another very good scholar on this, says this, Revelation 12, 7 and 9 appears to be the divine, listen to this, appears to be the divine interpretation of the conflict in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. So both these men, both good men, good scholars, coincide on this. They say that it has to do with Daniel 12, 1. And that's good news for Israel. Michael will come to Israel's aid in the last days, in the tribulation. He's going to be there to help them, even though there's going to be martyrdom, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be death. Nevertheless, what would it, it would be far worse without Michael's help. So that's the good news. What's the bad news? Well, Israel will have an ally in Michael, but Israel will, have, will endure unparalleled misery. They will endure unparalleled misery. It's going to be a horrible time, as we said earlier. Verse 1 says, of Daniel 12, chapter 12, there's going to be a time of distress such as never occurred. Listen to this. There's going to be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Horrible time of distress, unequal distress. And that's why Michael's assistance is going to be needed. It's going to be so great that and so severe uh, ever since there was even a nation. Now, that could be taken two ways. Maybe he's saying ever since there was a nation on the, on the face of the planet, this is going to be the worst time ever. Or ever since Israel was a nation, this is going to be the worst time ever. Either way, it's going to be a horrible time, unparalleled like nothing that's ever been seen in history. And, uh, and Israel, we talked about earlier the fact that Israel had gone through many difficulties in their history, but nothing to parallel this. It's going to be the worst of all. How bad will it get? Well, listen as we think through some scriptures in the Old Testament. And we'll look at one in the New Testament. In Jeremiah 37, this is called the time of Jacob's distress. In Zechariah 13.8, it says things were going to get so bad that two-thirds of the population of Israel are going to be killed during this time with only one-third remaining alive, surviving. That's going to be horrible. Think, imagine that, losing relatives, loved ones, others to this horrible time of tribulation, Zechariah 13.8. If you will, turn with me to Matthew 24, very key passage to look at in connection with this. Matthew 24, verse 15, <clears throat> concerning the tribulation, Matthew 24, 15, and this is what Jesus says. He refers to Daniel in this passage. <clears throat> Matthew 24, 15. He says here, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Wow, that's a great uh, phrase right there in parentheses. Oh, by the way, let the reader understand <laughs> uh, how we pray for understanding of these things, right? Verse 16, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then, listen to this, here it is again. Then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. That's pretty plain. It reminds me of a verse I just read. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. 
but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Verse 21 again. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Well, that sounds a lot like Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, right? I'm sure that Jesus had that in mind when he said this. And, he, and Jesus himself bears witness to the fact that it will be, a future time, will be the greatest time of suffering Israel has ever endured. Satan's going to be working overtime through the Antichrist to unleash persecution and evil and affliction against the Jews. It's going to be a horror show for Israel, an absolute horror show, an, un, an unparalleled time of distress and misery for them. And then Israel will experience a selective deliverance, a selective deliverance. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 1 says at the end of it, <clears throat> At that time, the last phrase, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. In spite of the fact that this is an unparalleled time of misery, there's going to be a remnant of Israel who are going to be rescued, who are going to be delivered, who are going to be saved. He says, your people. He's talking about Daniel's people, the Jews. And so there's going to be, this, there's going to be Jews who are going to be rescued or delivered uh, in this time. And it says these, these are going to be found written in the book. What book's he talking about? They're written in what book? Well, there's this book called the Book of Life. As you, as you, as you recall, traced throughout the scriptures, it's found in Exodus, it's found in Psalm, in Revelation, and other passages, that is, is recorded. Uh, uh, one one scholar, commentator says it, it calls this the book, the citizens, calls this book the citizens' list of the true Jerusalem. It's the names of all saints that are written in this book, God's book of uh, people who were saved, who are believers, truly believers. On the other end of it, Revelation 20:15 says this, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you have those who are going to be rescued and those who are not going to be rescued. Those who are going to escape and those who are not going to escape. Those who are going to be delivered and, and those who won't be delivered. What are they going to be rescued from? Physical death? Well, there's going to be those who are going to die as martyrs. Uh, in this time. And this is a difficult difficult passage here, but it seems as though these people are going to be delivered or rescued from the second death or spiritual death, the death in the lake of fire uh, in, in the context since we're at the end of the tribulation here. And so there's going to be selective deliverance, some delivered by God, others who are not going to be delivered. They, they're not true believers. But the point is the tribulation is going to be a reality. It's going to be a time of intense suffering for the Jews. But there's going to be a time of hope also for some. Those who have truly come to know the Messiah are not going to continue to suffer, but they're going to enjoy the blessings of being with God. So the first major theme uh, for, in the final days for Israel discussed here in Daniel 12 is the tribulation. The second major theme is the resurrection. And that's found in verses 2 and 3, the resurrection. And it says in verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. <coughs> These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. First of all here, the first thing we see about the resurrection is the fact of the resurrection. It's plainly taught. It says here, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. It's a very simple and obvious fact. It, doesn't, it says it without a lot of fanfare. It just throws it out there and says it. They're going to they're awake. It's not teaching that Israel is going to be restored to their land, by the way, as some have thought. It's teaching a resurrection. Uh, a physical resurrection from, from the dead. Of course, even with that, there's alternative views out there, as we know. 
Some people say there's no resurrection at all. Talk to some people, and they say, oh, I don't believe there's anything after this. It's just the grave, and that's the end of it. We just go in a hole in the ground, and that's all there is to it. And that's what, you know, you know by the way, uh, 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 philosophies like evolution and atheism, you ever thought about, you know, they sound so uh, braggadocious and proud and arrogant when they're talking about what they believe, but you ever thought through the implications of all that? You get to the end of your life, and it's all coming to near to the end, maybe, and you're sick, maybe you're in ill health, and uh, what kind of hope do you have with that kind of philosophy? You have none at all. They're just going to go in the grave, they believe, right? It's going to be the end of it. But for the believer, there's great hope, but some say there's no resurrection. And the classic example of that is in the New Testament a group called the Sadducees. They said in, in Acts 23.8 and other places, uh, it says the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Sadducees say we don't believe in a resurrection. There's no such thing. We don't believe in it. They were the theological liberals of their day, so they didn't believe that. They didn't believe anything else supernatural either, by the way. And today's theological liberals don't believe in that either. They don't believe there's a resurrection. They don't hold to it either. So some say there's no resurrection. Some say there's, you know, reincarnation. Now, Buddhists hold to that. We saw uh, those people in Myanmar who held to that view. Uh, I, thought, I told you I talked to that one person who said, well, it's just now. All we have is right now. We're only interested in right now, nothing else. I said, well, I'm interested in right now. Believers are interested in right now and, and the future and the past, for that matter, everything, especially the now and the future. But... Buddhists and Hindus and so on, reincarnation, man. It's a cycle of death and rebirth. It'd be based on your karma, on your good deeds, on what you've done or haven't done, and keep coming back until you try to escape that bondage. And so there are those who believe that. And there's any number of views held by people on what's going to happen later on. But Daniel 12.2 very plainly says, as a fact, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. One man says that this is the most... Uh, explicit reference in the Old Testament to the resurrection of the indivi individual. The most explicit reference to the resurrection of the individual. But it's not the only one. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, when God encountered Moses at the burning bush, and he said, I'm the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Jesus took that verse and he said, you see, in Matthew 22, he's not only the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. And he was talking to the Sadducees about the resurrection. And he applied it to the resurrection. And then Job, what did Job say? He said, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, right? I'm going to see God. He held to it. David held to it, Psalm 17, 15. I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Use that same metaphor of sleeping and awaking. And there's other references to this, uh, many references. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, how, how there's going to be a resurrection one day. And then, and then you go on and on about the resurrection. New Testament expanding upon the teaching of the resurrection. There's going to be two resurrections according to Revelation 20. One for the righteous, one for the wicked. And we can go on and on, but we're going to stick with Daniel chapter 12 right now. So we have the fact of the resurrection. What does Daniel 12, 2 teach, though? Well, look at, look at Daniel 12, 2, and it talks about, it says, many of those who sleep. Notice that word sleep, and the dust of the ground will awake, sleeping and awaking. After the time of distress time of tribulation, the time of suffering and misery, there's going to be a resurrection. The ones who are resurrected are called those who sleep. Now, when you see the word sleep in, in the Bible, like in, in this context, it's talking about physical death. 
Remember John, uh, uh, in John 11, uh, what's his name? Justin, what's the guy's name? John 11. Yeah, Lazarus. Sorry, I forgot his name. Lazarus. Justin, by the way, can you go with me wherever I go to speak so you can keep me online here? Lazarus, and also in Acts, uh, it talks about uh, Stephen. Uh, they both, when they, when they died, what does it say of them? It says they slept, right? They, they slept. That's spoken of, believers spoken of, uh, also in 1 Thessalonians 4, those who sleep in Christ, right? And that refers to physical death. Now, that's not soul sleep. Some people would jump on that, oh, there's such thing as soul sleep. It's not what he's talking about. This, we know that when the believer dies, the spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord, right, in his presence, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and so on. When the spirit of an unbeliever departs, it goes to be in misery and uh, torment, conscious torment, Luke 16, right? Uh, a commentator by the name of Baldwin says this, the reason for using sleep, this is a good statement right here, the reason for, reason for using sleep as a metaphor for die is that sleep is a, is a temporary state from which we normally awake. I like that phrase, normally awake. And so the reader is prepared for the thought of resurrection. That's a great statement. Let me read that again. The reason for using sleep here as a metaphor for die is that sleeping is a temporary state from which we normally awake, and so the reader is prepared for the thought of resurrection. And so it's a tender way of describing the believer and his falling asleep in Christ and being raised again. And, and that's a great thing. And that's, this is the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection is plainly taught in Daniel 12, verse 2. And then the future of the resurrected. What does the future of the resurrected hold for them? Well, there's two groups of resurrected people discussed in here, believers and unbelievers. They both have, they have two different, very, very different futures and two different destinies. You talk about a bright future and a bleak future. Wow, you have the ultimate in that right now. It says some here are going to experience everlasting bliss. It says in verse 2, some will, ar will arise, these to everlasting life. That's an exact translation, these to everlasting life. Believers are going to arise to enjoy everlasting life. By the way, this is the first time the phrase everlasting life appears in the Old Testament. And the New Testament teaches the same thing. Matthew 25, 46, the righteous will have eternal life. Same thing. Though the tribulation, the, the saints in the tribulation have endured much suffering and misery, even martyrdom and horrible things that are unspeakable, we don't even know what's going to happen. There's books out that tell what's going to happen, but we don't know what's going to happen exactly. Horrible things. But though those things happen, these people that are raised as believers are going to enjoy the bliss of everlasting, the blessing of everlasting life. They're going to be with God forever. They're going to rejoice in the presence of the Lord forever. They're going to know him and be with him for all eternity. And that's true for all of us also, by the way. And this passage is, is the primary context is Israel. But all of us who know the Lord are going to be, uh, undeservedly so, are going to be blessed by him for eternity. We don't deserve it. Definitely not. But this is the hope that we have within us, uh, the New Testament talks about. So some are going to experience everlasting bliss. <clears throat> And then others are going to experience everlasting sorrow. It says in verse 2 here, uh, the others, actually that, that, that is once again these, literally, these to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Unbelievers are going to face disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, this is a new way, uh, not a new way, this is a different way to think about the lost and their fate than we normally think of. Normally we hear about their, you know, 
their fate in hell, and that's a horrible thing, and we're going to say something about that. But this is a little different spin on this. Disgrace here is used, it's a very intensive word here. It means great disgrace or great reproach or great scorn. Unbelievers, think about this, put yourself in their shoes. They're going to stand before the Lord with tremendous shame and absolute disgrace. I don't care if they were an atheist and evolutionist and proud and haughty in this life. That's not going to matter then. They stand before the Lord. It's, it's, going to, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be disgrace, shame. Uh, uh, oh, man, what, what have I done? It's not going to be a time of excuses then, but it's just going to be a time of utter disgrace. And then the word contempt refers, refers to an object of aversion or abhorrence, something that's abhorred. Uh, Imagine being an everlasting abhorrence to God. That's right, to God. Imagine that. What a, what, a, what a horrible thought. We think of the punishment of the wicked, as I said. We think of the fires of hell, right? Horrible enough as it is. Horrible enough as it, as it is. But here's an added misery, everlasting abhorrence by God. What an absolute horrible fate awaits the wicked. God hates wickedness. He hates, our, he hates my wickedness. He surely hates their wickedness, the wickedness of unbelievers. What an absolute horrible fate they have. And notice that this is for eternity. Uh, it's going to be everlasting, this contempt, this disgrace. There's no relief in hell. No, it pains me to say that. I don't like to talk about this even. I'll be honest with you. There is no relief in hell for those who are there. There is, there is no annihilation, as some have taught. Listen, all of us want to get around the idea of, there's probably not anybody in this room that doesn't want to reasonably get around the idea of hell as taught in the Bible and make it something else that is, that, that's other than what's taught in the Scripture. We try to get around that. Well, let's just say it's annihilation. People are going to be annihilated one day, or something's going to happen, and it's not going to be forever. But I, I can't get around what the Scripture says. I, I wish it was that way. There's no early release from hell. It's forever. And this is where Mike is always telling us to meditate on these truths uh, so as to have compassion for the lost, right? Think of the, 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 and this is something I need to do more, think of the everlasting sorrow of the lost and the misery of the lost. So it would motivate us to preach to them, right? So they're going to have disgrace, contempt for eternity. And then look at verse 3. There's going to be the discerning or the wise are singled out for reward. Verse 3 says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Wow. Just the opposite is here. There's going to be great reward for those who are wise, those who have led many to righteousness, those believers who live, live for the Lord, and those who have uh, worked for him and, and done his will. I'm not saying that we're saved by our works here. It's not teaching that at all. Saved by Faith in Christ alone through grace. But there's going to be rewards for the faithful in Christ. It says in verse 3, those who have insight will shine like the expanse of heaven. To have insight means to act wisely or to act prudently or to act intelligently. Those believers who acted wisely upon the earth with the wisdom of God and lived in that manner, those people are going to be rewarded by God. And by the way, this is not only a way of thinking you know, he's a wise man. We think of the way he thinks and the decision he makes. But 
it's a way of behaving, a way of living. You're, you're, it's not like the book of Proverbs. You're thinking uh, uh, according to the, along the lines of the wisdom of God, and you're living along the lines of uh, according to the wisdom of God. And so it's a way of thinking and behaving. Does this describe us? This is very. This is a good verse for us to think about right here, verse three. This is how we want to be, and this is how we, we want this. We want this blessing from God. We want to live this way right now. But do are we described this way? Do we walk in God's wisdom? Do we show discernment, uh, or and live in a way that's wise and pleasing Him, or do we act contrary to the Scriptures? Ephesians five fifteen says, "Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise." Right. So we don't want to be fool. It goes on to say, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we want to be those who are wise, those who are characterized by wisdom, the wisdom of God, and those who are engaged in, as it goes on to say, those who lead the many to righteousness. And these are parallel statements in verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. The parallel statement, those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Literally, this, this phrase is the ones, the ones who are causing the many to be made righteous, the many to be righteous. These are people who are act, these wise people, these godly people are actively seeking to persuade others to turn from their sin and to turn to God and to live righteously before him. They, in their time, in this, this future time, they're trying to turn people away from the Antichrist, away from the evil one, away from the evil system, and turn them turn to God. And not only is this their job in a future day, but this is our job right now, right? This is the same job that we have. It's never changed. It's always been this way. Noah, the preacher of righteousness back in the Old Testament, all the way to the present day, all the way to the future. It's always the same. How are we doing with that? Are we testifying of the Lord to people? Or are we testifying of the way of wisdom, showing people that there's the two ways in Psalm 1, right? The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Are we showing them the way of the righteous, pointing them to, to, to the Lord, directing other believers to a life that pleases God? Are we seeking to lead many to righteousness? Is that, is that what we desire to do? And so we want to be like these guys in, in verse 3, having insight, shining brightly, and so on. And it says that we're going to be rewarded for this. Uh, we said these two clauses were parallel. <clears throat> Look at this. Those who, who have insight, or they're, what are they going to do? They're going to shine brightly like the like the expanse of the heaven. And then it goes on to say, those who lead the many righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Uh, in other words, a bright eternity awaits those who are wise, who lead others to wisdom in, in Christ and in God, who bring the truth of God's word to others. And this is great motivation for us to serve God. And so we have these two major themes in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. We have the theme of the tribulation, and we have the theme of the resurrection, especially as it pertains to Israel. The tribulation is going to be a time of suffering and misery and anguish. But Israel is going to have their protector, Michael, to watch over them and help them and assist them and aid them and be their ally uh, through this time. And they're not going to be without hope because they have that hope of the resurrection. You know, life can be very difficult. Life is very difficult for everybody. Life's more difficult for some than others. Some, for some people, it's... It's horrible. Others is, is difficult. Others not as difficult. But all of us who know Christ have the hope of the resurrection we look forward to. And we know the Lord would have us to be wise, behave wise, and seek to lead others to righteousness in him. And so today, tonight rather, we've looked at, once again at this passage, we have another opportunity 
to consider uh, the fact that God wants us to be wise and he wants us to tell, other, to tell others about him, point others to Christ, as Daniel did. As we, as we studied through the book of Daniel, we saw what a great witness he was to kings, the greatest kings that ever lived in, in, in that time, Nebuchadnezzar. Great witness to him and Darius and others. So we want to be a witness like he was. And we've got the, the opportunity tonight to be reminded of this. And so let this passage here be a catalyst for us once again to remind us and to burden us with our responsibility to be the people that God would have us to be, to be wise and turn many to righteousness and, and to wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, you thank you for this time together and for your word. <clears throat> we do pray that uh, you would take your word and, and help us all to uh, apply it to our lives, not just be hearers of the word and doers only, which is often the case with us, Lord. We just pray we take the word in, and we pray we let it affect our lives and be those that would be a testimony to others in this dark and lost world hopeless world, and we just pray we'd point them to hope in Christ, and we just pray it's in Christ's name, amen.